Today on the Matt Wall Show, a hippie nudist with a hammer assaulted Nancy Pelosi's husband inside their home in the middle of the night. But the most important thing the media wants us to know about this story is that it's all the fault of Republicans and also that we're not allowed to ask any more questions about it. Also, Elon Musk officially takes the helm at Twitter and immediately starts inst instituting a number of important changes. And Barack Obama takes the campaign trail to save the Democrats from the coming red wave. An NBA star shuts down a reporter in satisfying fashion. And another Starbucks employee has an emotional meltdown on camera. Is this a problem only at Starbucks or is it a society-wide issue? We'll talk about all of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and this battle is now finally leaving D.C. and going to the grassroots. No group in America is better positioned than 40 Days for Life with about 1 million volunteers in 1,000 cities. 40 Days for Life holds peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. They have a larger presence in blue states, with California being their largest state. Some former abortion facility directors say that these vigils can cause the abortion no-show rate to go as high as 75%, which is detrimental to their abortion business. These law-abiding vigils have closed many abortion businesses in America, and nearly half of those closed abortion facilities were in liberal cities where uh, abortion will remain legal, including closures in San Francisco, Chicago, and Seattle. 40 Days for Life is effectively changing hearts and minds in the grassroots to end abortion. You can check out their latest podcast and free magazine at 40daysforlife.com. And remember that the fight for life is not over just because Roe v. Wade is over. In fact, in many ways, the fight for life has uh, never been more important than it is right now. So for more information on 40 Days for Life, go to 40daysforlife.com. Well, it began as a strange story. It only got stranger as time went on. On Friday morning, we first heard reports about an alleged break-in at uh, the uh, Pelosi home in San Francisco. We were told that a man, who we later learned is 42-year-old David DePape, uh, broke into Nancy Pelosi's home with a hammer and screamed, where's Nancy? And a struggle then ensued between Pelosi's husband, Paul, and the intruder. Nancy Pelosi was not actually at home. She was in D.C. Uh, Paul was injured in the attack before police arrived and took the attacker into custody. Now, shortly after these earliest reports, we began hearing bizarre and sketchy details. I mean, even more bizarre than the original story. More questions emerged. Was one man or both wearing underwear at the time, as some reports seemed to suggest? How did Paul Pelosi manage to call the police? Did Paul Pelosi indicate to police that he knew his attacker? How did David DePab get into the residence? Do they not have security? What about security cameras, at least? If so, where's the footage? Many of these questions still remain unanswered or have been answered in a way that only raises still more questions. At least, that is, if you're a skeptical person interested in the basic truth. That does not describe the corporate media, of course, which is why they settled on the official narrative within minutes. The guy who broke into Pelosi's home is a right-wing militant and a QAnon supporter, they announced. And anyone who asks any more questions is a conspiracy theorist just as dangerous as David DePape himself. That's what the media ran with. And Democrats up to the highest levels were right there with them. Over the weekend, every left-wing cable news anchor and pundit Dozens of high-profile Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, AOC, and President Joe Biden, declared that um, dangerous rhetoric from conservatives had driven and provoked the Pelosi attack. They said it's our fault. They solemnly insisted that all of the political violence is committed by the right and that we in conservative media are especially to blame. Not much was known about um, you know, who the man with the hammer was or what he was doing in Nancy Pelosi's home or 
why he was tussling, possibly in his underwear with Nancy's husband. But all they knew or wanted us to know is that it's the fault of Republicans. And that's why Americans should, you know, vote for them in, in two weeks. Vote for us, they said, or there'll be many more 2 a.m. hammer assaults by naked weirdos. You could be next. You could be the next victim. Now, far be it from me to disobey the instructors, instructions given to us by our overlords, but I have to make a few points here. The first is this. I don't know what happened in Nancy Pelosi's house on Friday morning. I don't, I don't think I'll ever know for sure. I don't know if any of us will ever know for sure. But if the media is upset about the theories that are circulating on the internet, one of them being that this was a gay lover's quarrel between Paul and David, that's a theory that's just out there that people are talking about. If the media is upset about that, perhaps they could look within themselves to figure out why alternative theories gain so much traction in situations like this. And I know they're not capable of honest introspection, so I'll spell it out for them. Nobody trusts you guys. Nobody believes anything you say. It's certainly possible that the actual facts of this case roughly follow what's being reported by mainstream outlets. I don't know that they don't. Maybe they do. But what I do know is that there's no reason to assume or have faith that um, you would be honest about the facts if they didn't fit your narrative. See, that's the problem. If we're getting the facts from you, if we're getting the actual facts from you, it's only because they happen to be the sorts of facts that you want them to be. What, but what if they aren't? What if they aren't the facts you want them to be? Often they aren't. And then you lie or you cover up the truth or you use misdirection, obfuscation, whatever else. The point is that the proliferation of conspiracy theories is your fault. You did this. You have positioned yourselves as the arbiters of information. Well, what happens when the public realizes that it can't trust the arbiters? They turn elsewhere. Or they speculate on their own. They come up with theories. I mean, what else are they going to do? Just assume that you're telling the truth? They can't. They've seen you lie far too often. They know you. Trust in the media is broken, and it cannot be mended, especially because the party that broke the trust, that's you, isn't even trying to mend it. Now, as for me, I find it perfectly plausible that a drug-addled nutcase broke into Pelosi's home in the middle of the night. I mean, this is San Francisco, after all. Is the violent crime problem in that city so bad now that even the folks in the wealthy parts of town aren't safe from it? Sure, I'd believe that. In fact, I would assume that's the case. What I can't believe is that the drug-addled crazy guy who apparently lives in a bus outside of a hippie commune in Berkeley with rainbow flags and BLM slogans draped outside of it is somehow a right-wing militant influenced by Fox News to go assault Democratic politicians. That's what I don't believe. To me, if the basic facts of the case, as presented by police, are essentially correct, then this is a local San Francisco crime story about yet another homeless, drug-crazed freak lashing out violently. What's ludicrous beyond all imagining is the attempt to turn this San Francisco crime story into an indictment of Republicans. Trying to blame Republicans for crime in Berkeley is like, I mean, well, there's nothing to compare it to. It, it is a logical leap that exceeds analogy. The real story here, again, if the facts roughly line up with the official narrative, the real story is that high-ranking Democratic politicians are now falling victim to the violent crime epidemic that their policies have facilitated and encouraged. 
That's the story. As for actual political violence, I'm old enough to remember ancient history back many moons ago, like in the summer when an armed left-wing radical showed up to Justice Kavanaugh's house planning to assassinate him and two other conservative justices. I can remember when Rand Paul's neighbor assaulted him and broke three ribs, or six ribs, I think. I can remember when a Bernie bro shot up a GOP baseball practice. I can remember just the past month, which has seen multiple Republican canvassers and activists assaulted and hit by cars and politically driven attacks. And this is all to say nothing of the mass political violence that set entire city blocks on fire during the BLM riots. It also says nothing of the violence from from left-wing terror organizations like Antifa. It says nothing about the threats of violence that I encounter nearly every day of my life for saying things that leftists don't like. You know, it's clear to any honest person who's, you know, to any honest person who is actually committing the political violence and who is actually encouraging it. In fact, in many of these cases, the left actively cheered the violence. Nancy Pelosi's daughter was one of the Democrats tickled pink over Rand Paul getting hospitalized. I bet she's not laughing now. Or maybe she is. I mean, leftists tend to hate their own family, so who knows? And of course, you know, this I must remind you again is it's not a double standard. The left ignores violence against conservatives or actively roots for it because they believe Republicans deserve to be hurt or killed. I mean, that's it. And they decry violence against Democrats because they believe that Democrats are the good guys and don't deserve to be hurt or killed. It is as simple and depraved and evil as that. And that's also why we can't take these people seriously or believe anything they say. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, despite what the left may tell you, being fat is not healthy. This is a very radical and very dangerous misperception of reality. That said, living a healthy lifestyle is not easy. It's hard to get up and go for a run every morning. It's hard to Make sure that you're getting the proper nourishment, especially when you, you're running uh, you know, to work, to practice, to cello lessons. Cello lessons. If for whatever reason you go to those, to wherever else you need to be, being healthy is a discipline. It's a discipline that starts with balance of nature. Balance of nature, fruits and veggies are the best way to consume essential nutritional ingredients every single day. Their products are 100% whole food. Balance of Nature uses a cold vacuum process that preserves the natural phytonutrients in whole fruits and vegetables and encapsulates them for easy consumption on your way to cello practice. When you're disciplined enough to take care of your health, you reap all all kinds of benefits, more energy, less fatigue, better focus. You play the cello better. Consuming the right balance of fruits and vegetables every day is an important first step. So go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code Walsh for 35% off your first order. That's balanceofnature.com, promo code Walsh for 35% off your first preferred order. Uh, well, happy Halloween, everybody. I'm, I'm getting into the holiday spirit with my pumpkin-colored shirt, which is what they told me in the wardrobe department when they made me put this shirt on. Um, lots of other people here at the office are, are really getting into it, though. Uh, very elaborate costumes that I've seen. The whole wardrobe and makeup department is dressed up like uh, characters from Hocus Pocus, apparently. McKenna and Austin who work on our show are dressed up as a, there's a Scooby-Doo theme going on. Um, I saw somebody dressed as a hot dog, I think. So there are a bunch of other costumes, too. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, I know this doesn't surprise you. I just don't, I don't get it, okay? I mean, what's the point? I think I'm missing some kind of 
gene that makes the costume thing make sense to me. Either that or the rest of you people are missing something and I'm the only normal one, which increasingly I believe is the case. But when people say, well, are you going to dress up for Halloween this year? What are you dressing up as? My first response is to say, do I look like I'm eight years old? No. I mean, I've got the beard. Um, And also, why? I mean, what's the point? If you could explain to me, what's the point of the costume as an adult? What am I supposed to do? Okay, so I put the costume on, and then what? What do I do now? Am I supposed to wear this costume all day? Why? And especially with adults, it's like, once everyone has seen the costume, then it, you, you continuing to wear it seems like overkill. Because you get the reaction from everyone comes in, they, and they come to the office, and they see, they oh, look, uh, you came to the office dressed like a watermelon. Isn't that funny? And, and you got your little laugh. Now, but are you actually going to sit around all day as a watermelon? Are you going to go to meetings as a watermelon? Are you going to go on lunch break as a watermelon? Don't try to come talk to me and have serious work conversations as a watermelon. Are you going to try to negotiate a pay raise as a watermelon? Are you going to have like a Skype meeting with a client as a watermelon? It just, I don't, where do you go from here is my point. If I could be convinced on the costume thing, it's like five minutes. If I'm in charge of a company, it's you wear the costume for five minutes and then take it off. But even the five minutes is a waste. And then we're wasting uh, time on the clock. So actually, we're not going to do that at all. I would go back maybe to my Twitter strategy, which is invite employees to wear costumes on Halloween and then fire anyone who's wearing one. That would be a great Halloween. All right. Um, Here's the latest from the Elon Musk. Speaking of Twitter, the Elon Musk Twitter takeover. This is from Reuters. It says, Elon Musk has denied a New York Times report about laying off Twitter employees at a date earlier than November 1st to avoid stock grants due on the day. In response to a Twitter user asking about the layoffs, Musk tweeted, this is false. The New York Times reported on Saturday that Musk has ordered uh, job cuts across the company with some teams to be trimmed more than others and that layoffs would take place before November 1st when employees were scheduled to receive stock grants as part of their compensation. Citing unidentified people familiar with the matter, the Times reported the cuts could begin as soon as Saturday. According to media reports on Saturday, Musk fired top executives in an effort to avoid hefty severance payouts while lining up other layoffs as soon as, um, as, soon as Saturday. Okay, so now Elon says this isn't true, that he's not firing people to avoid giving them the severance payouts. But it's funny to see the left up in arms about this, as they are, because now suddenly golden parachutes are a good thing. If the story is true, this is Elon trying to deny wealthy corporate executives their golden parachutes. And we're now supposed to see that as a bad thing. For years, the the golden parachute, the dreaded golden parachute was one of the things that everyone would decry, especially on the left. And now we're supposed to feel bad for wealthy corporate executives if they don't get one. It is a a joke because, as we said at the top, nothing these people say means anything or should be believed. Meanwhile, the media meltdown has continued. Uh, Many examples that we could cite and play for you, but we'll pick just a couple. Here's here's just one. This is Amy Klobuchar on MSNBC um, talking about the, the crisis that we now face because Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter Watch. 
we have to do something about this amplification right. um, of this election-denying hate speech that we see on the Internet. Now that Elon Musk runs Twitter, do you trust him? Uh, no, I do not. What uh, What's your biggest fear of him running this um, running this social media platform? Well, I think you have to have some content moderation because when you look at what this guy was looking at, he was looking at. Uh, just horrendous things you don't even want to talk about on your show. He was posting anti-Semitic tropes. He was showing memes um, that showed violence and all of this election-denying uh, pro-Trump MAGA crowd rhetoric. Right. That's what we're dealing with here. And if Elon Musk has said now that he's going to start a content moderation board, that was one good sign. But I continue to be concerned about that. I just don't think people should be making money right. off of passing on this stuff that's a bunch of lies. You couldn't do that on your network, nope. Chuck. Nope. You couldn't. We have you, real rules. you guys that's look right. at commercials that's and right. you decide if they are false or not. That is not a requirement of these companies and we have to change the requirements on these companies. They are making money off of us. They are making money off of this violence. There's no doubt. The tech companies are a huge, huge problem in this. And they got to take some responsibility. Senator Klobuchar, uh, Democrat from Minnesota, thank you for coming on and sharing your perspective. Now, I got to say, Amy Klobuchar doesn't get enough credit as the comedic genius that she is because that whole thing was I, that was very very funny. Uh, and and the, the the punchline at the very end really got me, where she said, uh, you know, people can't make money from spreading lies. You would never do that on your network, NBC. Um, and I and I did find it funny when when she was listing this guy, and she was talking about, of course, David DePap, the uh, the the uh, uh, homeless, drug-addled guy from Berkeley, nudist, lives at a hippie commune who's a, a right-wing radical, apparently, and said that he was doing all these, he was showing memes, she says. Now, the interesting thing about that, by the way, is that I, we, we keep hearing about this guy uh, and all of the right-wing propaganda that he was disseminating and engaging in. I haven't seen very many examples of it. We're just being told that it existed. And that, and that, you know, it's just take their word for it. It's out there. He showed a lot of memes, Amy Klobuchar says, a lot of right-wing memes. Um, even though he was a hippie, nudist, homeless, drug-addled guy in a bus outside of a hippie commune. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it was, but also big Fox News viewer, big Tucker Carlson fan. You know, if I had a dime for every Tucker Carlson fan who lives in a bus outside of a hippie commune in Berkeley. I'd have one dime, apparently. Um, this is what they're worried about, is that now there's not going to be an, a, any content moderation, which, by the way, Elon Musk has not said that. He hasn't said that there's not going to be any. In fact, he said the opposite. He said he doesn't want the, the site to turn into a, into a quote-unquote free-for-all, which I agree with, by the way. You, know, you, you do want, there needs to be some content moderation. Um, there, in fact, in, in some areas, Twitter could do with a lot more of it right now. When it comes to pornographic things being shared, um, actual threats of violence, like I mentioned, I, I get threats of violence targeting me, doxing, all this. It happens to me all the time. And it happens to conservatives all the time. That's the kind of thing that should be moderated. So, yeah, I would like to see, in fact, in some areas, m much more moderation than there already is. 
uh, graphic sexual content, pornographic content, um, you know, child pornography on these platforms is a big problem. And then again, actual threats of violence. Yeah, you shouldn't be able to do that on a social media platform. To say, I'm going to go kill you, encourage other people to go kill this person, put their address. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. It happens all the time on Twitter. But if you're a conservative and you're being targeted for it, then good luck getting the, the content taken down. Trust me, I know from experience. What we don't need to moderate, though, are people's opinions. And it's really not that hard to differentiate between pornography, child pornography, actual threats of violence, doxing. Okay, so there's all those things that are in one category. And then there are just people's opinions about things. And we act as though these two categories are impossible to distinguish between. But they're really not. I think we all intuitively know the difference between, say, graphic pornographic content, violent content, and just a guy's opinion. Meanwhile, Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC says that, in fact, as outraged as the left is about Elon Musk taking over Twitter, he says they're not outraged enough. Listen. Julian, I have to ask, could the Biden administration, could Democrats in Congress have said or done anything to prevent or even slow down this Musk purchase of Twitter? I feel like if George Soros had been buying Twitter, the right would have made far more noise and expressed more outrage. Dems just let it happen as if it's fine for Twitter to become yet another platform for misinformation and hate. Well, there, there may have been, but uh, I mean, at this point, I think it's going to be the responsibility of each and every one of us to do what we can to hold Elon Musk accountable. Uh, I agree with those who said that it's telling that he did end up backing off and deleted that tweet a few hours after he had put it up. Now, uh, I agree with everybody. Look, I think he's acted very irresponsibly, immaturely. Frankly, Mehdi, I don't know how in the world this guy got to be the richest person in the world. Uh, acting as irresponsibly and immaturely as he ha- and erratically as as we've seen him act, not just this week but over the years, uh, but it means that he will back off when there is pressure. And so, folks who care about the truth, who care about protecting vulnerable communities, who ultimately are the ones who are going to be most hurt by his irresponsible behavior and allowing these voices of hate to be elevated on this huge platform. We have to keep pushing back. Uh, and, and my hope is that that uh, is going to make a difference in the long run. Yeah, Democrats are not upset enough. That's the big problem. And imagine, Mehdi Hassan says, imagine if a big tech company was owned by a left winger. Just imagine that. Imagine how upset people on the right would be. I can't. It's unimaginable. Nothing like it has happened. There has never been a big tech company owned by somebody on the left. It's never happened. Hassan says he wishes that this could have been prevented. So remember all those years of the left saying that uh, Twitter's a private company. You know, they can, uh, they can have any rule they want. They can enforce the rules how they want or not enforce them. Don't like it, go build your own platform. And now, you know, of course, their respect for the rights of private companies has gone out the window as expected. Notice something else, though, because this is very revealing. Notice what the left is not concerned about. They're not concerned that they are going to be banned from Twitter now or that they're going to be targeted the way that Twitter has targeted the right. They're not worried about that. 
because they know that's not going to happen. They know that nobody on the right even wants that. I don't want that. I actually, I would not want, I mean, if it happens, it happens, but I don't want Twitter to drive, you know, uh, uh, leftists off the platform and ban them because then Twitter becomes a, a, an echo chamber. What's the fun of that? In fact, now that we can, you know, speak basic truths on Twitter, especially basic biological truths, I want the left to be there. I want them to be there and I want them to be exposed to it. Uh, it, 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 it makes it much more valuable then because they're the ones who need to be exposed to this stuff. And it's also a lot more fun. So, no, on the right, we, we want them there. Please stay. Now, if you leave, we're not going to cry about it, but make your own choices. But I, if it were up to me, sure, I'd, I'd want you all here. So what the left is upset about is not that they're worried that th- this is going to be a time of a vengeance and they're going to be targeted. No, it's just that they're, they're worried that the right will no longer be targeted. That's what they're concerned about. You know, I said, uh, you know, we, we, we could, of course, respond to the left as they have to us, that go build your own platform if you don't like it. And um, in fact, they have. The, the, the Post, Post-Millennial has this story. There's a new uh, woke social media platform out there. And I know that's a little bit redundant because they're all woke, but uh, maybe with the exception of, of Twitter now, remains to be seen. But there's one out there called Tribal, and uh, Postmillennial has this story. On Thursday, woke social network Tribal announced that it was preemptively banning Donald Trump, his son, Elon Musk, and Kanye West from its platform. The move comes as its creator, Omar Rivero, who also runs Occupy Democrats, continues to foment fears over Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, Occupy Democrats broke the news Thursday morning, suggesting that Tribal had made the decision to ban Trump, his son, and Kanye West based on allegations of spreading dangerous conspiracy theories and fake news. It says Trump was banned after former President Obama advocated for the ban in the wake of the Capitol riot on January 6th. West was banned for anti-Semitism. Within the Occupy Democrats fan base, the bans bans were celebrated. However, outside the leftist echo chamber, many were quick to point out the hypocrisy of a site that bills itself as pro-democracy preemptively barring those they disagree with politically from having accounts. Well, that's not really the point, though, is that the point is that none of these guys that are being preemptively banned from tribal, whatever that is, have heard of this platform or would want to join it anyway. So this is a bit like the kid who sits alone at the lunch table eating his own boogers, deciding to throw a birthday party for himself and preemptively banning all the popular kids from coming. You know, it's like it's like him walking up to the popular kids table in the in the cafeteria and saying, hey, all of you, you can't come to my party. Who was that? Uh, I don't know. I think it was the kid that eats his own burgers. Boogers. Okay. Um, I just find that I find that very funny. And by the way, speaking of the cool kids, I also wanted to mention this: is as we as we look at the changes that Elon Musk is going to be making to Twitter. Uh, this is this from The Verge, and this is another thing the left's upset about. It says now that he owns Twitter, Elon Musk has given employees their first ultimatum: meet his deadline to introduce paid verification on Twitter or pack up and leave. The directive is to change Twitter Blue, which is the company's optional um, $5 a month subscription that unlocks additional features into a more expansive subscription that also verifies users. According to people familiar with the matter, Twitter is currently planning to charge $19.99 a month for the new Twitter Blue subscription. So the basic idea is that, um, is that if you want to get the blue check on Twitter, this is what supposedly Elon Musk is planning. If you want to get the blue check on Twitter, or if you want to keep the one you already have, then you got to pay 20 bucks a month for it. 
which I think is a great plan, actually. I say this as somebody who has a blue check. I don't see myself paying 20 bucks a month for it unless there are some great additional. There are some perks you could offer that, that, um, that I would pay 20 bucks a month for. Like if, if you give me the ability to just unilaterally ban someone if I don't like them, then I'd pay 20 bucks a month for that. I'd pay 50 bucks a month for that. Um, but just for the check, I won't pay it. But I think it's a good idea because the idea about the original, the reason they call it a verified, it's a verification badge on these social media sites, and they all have them. The idea of the verification badge is simply to verify that the person who runs the account is a real person and not a bot. That's really, that's, that's what it is. Um, it's turned into this kind of like uh, elitist club. You know, it's turned into the cool, it's supposed to be the popular kids table in the lunchroom. That's what it's turned into. And they end up giving the verification badge to these small, irrelevant accounts, people that are supposedly in media and have like a thousand followers, and they get the verification badge because they get to go to the front of the line and they get accepted into the cool kids club. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to just be that you can verify that you are a real person. Um, and you know, part of the verification process is you give them an ID or whatever, you, you prove that you're a real person and now you're a verified account. If that's important to you, charge him. This is like a, this is a, a tax that he's lay, that he's uh, imposing on the blue check club on Twitter. And again, as a member of that club, I actually think it's a great idea. There are not many taxes that I agree with, but this one I would because that's optional. I would just say, yeah, I don't, I don't need it. No thanks, I don't need the blue check. But the blue check is very important to left wingers on Twitter. It's very important to them, and so they will they'll complain about it, but they will pay the twenty bucks for it. All right. Uh, Democrats are panicking as we head to the midterms. So now they are trotting out their secret weapon, which is the president of the United States, not the current one. They don't, he's not their, he, they don't want him on the, the campaign trail. This is rather Obama and um, the most recent Democratic president before Biden. And he had these thoughts to share on the campaign trail this weekend. Listen. But these days, just about every... Republican politician seems obsessed with two things. Owning the libs. Oh man, we're going to own the libs. And getting Donald Trump's approval. That seems to be their agenda. They are not at, they're not currently at least, they are not interested in actually solving problems. They are interested in making you angry and then finding somebody to blame. Because that way they're going to, they're hoping you may not notice, you may be distracted from the fact that they don't really have any answers to your problems. I don't know. I think this backfires for the, uh, for the, for the Democrats to have Obama out on the campaign trail. Now, I've never, I, I've always thought that he was overrated as a public speaker, but he can at least string sentences together, which is more than the current president of the United States can do. So I think this only... This only uh, highlights that contrast, and it makes people say, oh, th this is what it's like to have a, a president of the United States who can at least speak. Um, everything he's saying there is nonsense, of course. Now, I'm not a politician. Okay? I'm not a Republican politician, so I'm not specifically who he was talking about. But I will say that, at least for me personally, I am not obsessed with owning the libs and getting Trump's approval. I am just obsessed with owning the libs. That's the only thing I'm obsessed with. Um, and to be honest with you, I wish that more Republicans were obsessed with it. I, I think we'd be in a much better spot if there were more Republicans obsessed with owning the libs. 
Now, there are more noble motivations that one could have, but that's better than nothing. You know, I'll take a Republican who's simply out to own the libs over one who is, uh, who's more concerned about appeasing the left and taking the path of least resistance and just sort of coasting along and not getting into any trouble, which is, what mo- which is how you describe most Republicans, especially on the national stage. I- I'll, take, I'll take the former option over that. Now, I want to play this clip for you, too. Kyrie Irving is the uh, NBA star with the Nets. He's been getting himself in trouble with the media for social media posts that he's been putting up. Last year, you know, he wouldn't get vaccinated, and they were on his case for that. Now he's posting stuff they don't like. A few weeks ago, he posted something about the New World Order, quoting Alex Jones. And then more recently, he tweeted something about a film called Hebrews to Negroes. That's what the film is called. Um, A film that the media says is anti-Semitic, which maybe it is. I know absolutely nothing at all about this movie. I have no clue. Never heard of it before. Um, I've done zero seconds of research on it because I don't really care about a film that I've never heard of that a basketball player was talking about. doesn't seem like it matters, but it led to this exchange between Kyrie Irving and a reporter that I thought was interesting. Watch. Kyrie, while we're on the topic of promotion, why did you decide to promote something that Alex Jones said? That was a few weeks ago. I do not stand with Alex Jones position, narrative, court case that he had with Sandy Hook or any of the kids that felt like they had to relive trauma or parents that had to relive trauma or to be dismissive to all the lives that were lost during that uh, tragic event. My, my post was a post from Alex Jones that he did in the early 90s or late 90s about secret societies in America of occults, and it's true. So... I wasn't identifying with anything of being a campaign, a campaignist for Alex Jones or anything. I was just there to post. And it's funny, and it's actually hilarious because out of all the things I posted that day, that was the moment post that everyone chose to, chose to see. It just goes back to the way our world is and works. I'm not here to complain about it, I just exist. And to follow up on the promotion of the movie and the book. Can you please stop calling it a promotion? What am I promoting? Put it out on your platform. But I'm promoting it? Do you see me doing, do you see By me in front of the, it out there, the people title? are going to say that you are Yeah, I put promoting. it out there just like you put things out there, right? Yeah, but I, okay. I, it's not You put stuff. things out there for a living, right? Right, but my Great. stuff Great. is so not let's move on. filled let's with move on. anti-Semitic Let's stuff. move on. Don't dehumanize me up here. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing I'm that. You're free being. to post I can what, post whatever I want, so say that and shut it down and move on to the next question. But Kyrie, you have to understand that by I don't have post- to understand anything from you. But, but it's Nothing. not me. Nothing. By it's no people that you're making up, bro. Move on. But by posting what you did. Move on. Next question. Anybody Do you guys have any more questions for me? And they're going to say, you guys have any more questions? Because this is going to be a beliefs. clip. This is going to be a clip that he's going to marvel at. Is this any more questions? But you're not answering the question. Oh, this is another answering your question. Oh, my God. Let's make another Instagram clip so we could be famous again. Next question. Um, I'm with Kyrie Irving on this one for two reasons. Well, three. Uh, I generally am on board with anyone who treats the left-wing sports media with contempt and disregard. Um, and uh, just talks over them and refuses to answer the questions. I'm on board with that. I love that. I think that's what they deserve. Also, Kyrie is right that just because you mention something or quote someone, that doesn't mean that you're promoting, okay? It doesn't mean you're promoting something. You could be. Maybe he was promoting the film. I don't even know what the, what the tweet was or the Instagram post. I don't know. I don't care. 
But he's not promoting Alex Jones by quoting him. And, and third, the bigger point here, which really harkens back to the first, is screw these hacks, you know? How many tense exchanges has the media had with LeBron James for spreading pro-BLM misinformation? You know, for putting the picture of a cop out there who, uh, in the Micaiah Bryant case, who's saved a, a woman's life and put his picture out there, hey, you're next. How many tense exchanges have there been over that? So it's all disingenuous. There's a double standard as always. And uh, that's, all, that's all we need to know about this. That, that, that perfectly, absolutely justifies Kyrie Irving's approach um, in this case. No matter how you feel about whatever he posted. And like I said, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter to me what he posted. It doesn't make a difference. All right, finally, uh, before we get to the comment section, this is from page six. It says, it looks like the Clooney's have either a budding artist or politician in the family, or perhaps both. Appearing alongside Michelle Obama and Melinda French Gates at a panel in uh, New York City on Tuesday, the human rights lawyer revealed just how much her five-year-old twins, Ella and Alexander, inspire her work. The 44-year-old admitted that while her kids, whom she shares with husband George Clooney, 61, aren't quite on top of current events, her son often takes notes of what she's up to at work. In fact, she didn't hesitate giving his two, he didn't hesitate giving his two cents on the current situation surrounding Russian President Vladimir Putin. She said, my son drew a picture the other day of a prison, and he was like, Putin should be here. So her five-year-old son is drawing pictures of Putin in prison. Um, my five-year-old son has never drawn a picture of Putin because he has no idea who Putin is because I'm not a lunatic and I don't talk to my five-year-old about geopolitical events. So oftentimes when, when celebrities and leftists post things like this, the, the assumption is that they're making it up. And this, this is all like they're inventing these things that their kids said or these political insights that their kids offered. And I think oftentimes it is made up. I think oftentimes it, it's, it, it is invented, sure. But I'm also perfectly willing to believe that these nutcases are actually talking to their toddlers and to their four and five-year-olds about the war in Ukraine. And yeah, if you sit a five-year-old down and tell them all about somebody named Putin and tell them that he's a bad guy and a villain and he wants to nuke the entire world, and if you tell a five-year-old that, that that'll sink in for sure. And, and it wouldn't surprise me. He starts drawing pictures of the bad guy Putin and talking about Putin all the time. And absolutely. I mean, five-year-olds are very impressionable and they latch on to things. And uh, if you tell them something like that, they'll latch on to it. But so what that tells me is that if you're not a liar, which again is a possibility, you're just a bad parent for, for foisting these concerns onto your five-year-old. What the hell is he going to do with it? What do you want him to do about Putin? I mean, what do you want any of us to do about Putin? But what do you want your five-year-old to do about it? A good, a good uh, approach here, if, you, you know, if you're a good parent, is that you tell, it's not that you never share troubling information with your young children. It's that you only share with them the troubling information that is relevant to their lives and that they can respond to in some way. So it's a troubling fact that if you run into the road chasing a bouncy ball, you might get hit by a car and killed. That's a troubling fact. 
but it's also a fact that's relevant to your child's life. And so that's something you need to tell a five-year-old. You know, uh, so that there, there, are, there are dangers and concerns you need to tell your kids about. But only the ones that they can respond to, the ones that, that the information that will be useful and will make them safer in their, in their everyday life. As, as they get older, you know, it's once you become older that you're going to start to encounter um, all of the misery and you're going to become aware of the misery and despair and all the terrible things that are just out there in the world. And you got to carry that knowledge around with you every day, knowing that you can't do anything about most of it. You know, that's not easy even for adults to deal with. But a five-year-old shouldn't have to. Again, if you're interested in actually being a good parent. Let's get now to the comment section. Daily cancellations are the law and order of the day. Well, as you know, I've recently updated my style. It was a controversial decision, but I also think the right move. I have a new set. I wear blazers. It's a whole new me. But the best thing about my new style is True Classic tees. True Classic makes a man look good and feel good. No more boxy fit or loose collars. True Classic fits a a bit tighter in the chest and sleeves, but leaves room in the torso for a relaxed t-shirt feel. Plus, my listeners can get 25% off True Classic tees with code Walsh at trueclassic.com. All of True Classic styles are super soft and reasonably priced. They're more than just a t-shirt company. True Classic has all the menswear staples you need, including polos, workout shirts, and boxer briefs. You can build your entire wardrobe with True Classic. Um, I love their bundles. You can purchase three packs or a six pack. And uh, the price per shirt is far more reasonable than any other premium brand. True Classic has a 100% risk-free guarantee with a 30-day return policy. The response to True Classic tees has been overwhelmingly positive, so you don't have to take my word for it. They've got over 70,000 five-star reviews. So if you were like me a few months back and in desperate need of a new wardrobe, check out trueclassic.com. That's trueclassic.com. Use promo code Walsh to get 25% off plus free shipping on purchases over $100. TrueClassic.com, promo code Walsh. True Classic, when you look good, you feel good. Well, we had our uh, 11th anniversary over the weekend, uh, my wife and I. Um, 11th wedding anniversary, 11 years we've been in this game. As is, I guess, widely known now. I met my wife when I was uh, an obscure shock jock morning radio host in Delaware, earning, I believe, um, a cool $22,000 a year, if I remember correctly at the time. Started out at seventeen grand a year, so I was there for five years, and I I made it all the way up to $22,000 a year. Quite proud of that. Um, my wife, you know, married me, moved into our, uh, one bedroom, 400 square foot apartment that I'd been living in. It was an old house that had been converted into apartments. My, uh, my kitchen was at one point, I could tell a, cl- it had been a closet, not even a walk-in closet. Now it was a kitchen, uh, rotating cast of neighbors that always had a rotating list of reasons why the police were coming and, uh, visiting them oftentimes late at night and quite noisily. Um, the whole building was infested with cockroaches and mice and it was quite disgusting. My wife willingly married me and moved into that situation. Um, I remember we had our first Thanksgiving as a married couple a month, about a month after we got married, and I didn't have a working oven in the apartment or a, or a dining room table or chairs or, or anything really, I had no, like no furniture. So she whipped up a, a pretty good Thanksgiving meal using mostly the microwave, and we just sat around in folding chairs and ate it. And uh, you know, you, you look back at times like this sort of nostalgically, but in reality, living through it, it was quite tough. You know, it's difficult uh, to be broke and barely scraping by. 
And, um, but we made it through, through that and, and, uh, and largely helped along by, by my wife and, uh, all of that to say, when she suggested a few weeks ago that on our anniversary this year, I should accompany her to a tea time at a fancy hotel in Nashville, I figured I, I owed it to her. Uh, it's not my cup of tea, literally. But I said, you know what? You gave me everything in life that I care about. I can, I can give you tea time. And so, I, and so I did. And we went to the tea time. And uh, she, she did tell me that there are plenty of men who go to the tea time and that it wouldn't be weird for me as a man because there'd be, there'd be other guys there. And that was false advertising, it turned out, because I got there and there were no, there were no other men. And eventually there was another man, but he was 95 years old. And uh, so, you know, I, and, and I was there and, and they, brought, they brought out the little tea kettles and they brought out little sandwiches uh, with cucumbers on them. And all the food was way too small. And I was hungry and I just wanted a beer and a cheeseburger. But I sat there and the women who were all at the tea time in their fancy hats, they stared at me and, you know, they said to themselves, what the hell is this big bearded oaf doing at our tea time? And I could feel their judgment bearing down on me. But uh, I handled it with grace and without complaint for the sake of my lovely bride. I did complain, but only a little bit by my standards. So I think it was okay. Uh, my wife made it all better anyway because she gave me two bottles of whiskey and a bunch of socks as an anniversary present, which are my favorite things, whiskey and socks. So it all worked out. All right. SK420 says, Matt, I listened to what you say carefully. I'm 17. I deleted all social media to focus on football, not school. And my quality of life has been way better. Godspeed, sweet daddy. I like how you specify you're focusing on football, not school. But you're focusing on something. And I, and I consider that a good thing. You're focusing not on social media, on something else, something that you're doing. And that is, uh, that is a, a positive. That puts you far ahead of most, most of your peers, I would say. Uh, Ronan says, Matt, a good alternative to the word proud is honored. We all know that people these days have too much pride in things that they didn't get themselves and things that aren't an accomplishment. Yeah, I think honored works. Like I said, you could also say, rather than saying I'm proud of this or that, you can say I'm happy about this. I'm, I, I actually think grateful is the better word to be, used, to be using in so many um, contexts. But the problem is that, uh, as we talked about, you know, only certain people are allowed to be proud, whereas other people, it's not just that you're not supposed to be proud, it's that you're supposed to be the opposite. You're supposed to be uh, uh, guilt-ridden and remorseful. Um, the preacher's wife says, just watched What is a Woman with a Bunch of Friends, hilarious and terrifying. We knew that there were people that evil and deranged in our society, or who knew? I appreciate Matt's facial expressions during their insane answers. Fantastic job. I wish it were on a non-paid platform. The people that need to see it won't pay. I totally understand why they have to charge, but wish someone would sponsor it for the public to be able to watch. Absolutely a must watch. Well, we have been going on tour, uh, screening the movie all around. And, and I know that there are other, plenty of other groups that have had their own screenings, which is something that I would encourage you to do. Have your own screening, invite people to come. But at the same time also, um, you know, it, I know that, uh, that the Daily Wire and the platform that we offer here, that we, you know, I believe in what we're doing. I believe we're, we are doing important work in the culture. And um, as we always are talking about, and it's true, it sounds like a sales pitch, and it sort of is, but it also happens to be the truth, 
that we can't do this work without people becoming subscribers and paying and supporting us. Like this is this really is a, a team effort, which is one of the reasons why you know it's you're not going to take your content and just offer it for free to the public, um, because if we do that, then we're not the platform. We don't have the power and the ability to do the things we do. We also don't have a movie like What Is a Woman doesn't exist without the subscribers. It just wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do it. We would not have been able to do it. And we wouldn't be able to do anything like it in the future. So, but thank you for watching. Really appreciate that. Um, Evil Chucky says, you can only earn respect. You certainly can't demand it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually the difference between command and demand, right? You can't demand respect. Well, you can. I mean, you could go into, a, demanding respect is to go into a room and say, everyone must respect me right now. That's demanding. You're making demands. Um, commanding is just your very, you know, the way you carry yourself, the way you operate, your presence attracts respect. It commands it. This is also the true, I think, uh, this, is, this, is, this is true in parenting, too. It's a mistake that we can make as parents is that we're very demanding. We can be very demanding, but not commanding. Yeah, you can make demands of your kids and shout and yell and everything and say, do this, do that. And you can do that, and that'll get you, that only gets you so far, though. Um, there's a certain point where if you've demanded obedience, you've demanded respect, you've demanded compliance for your kids, there's a certain point where they just don't care about the demands anymore. That's why instead, you know, good parenting is commanding. You command respect from your kids by your presence, by your example, by your leadership in the home. Um, and Ashley says, Matt, after hearing your comments about Rudolph, I'm wondering if you can offer a contrarian take on the Grinch, where the Grinch is the good guy. Well, it's not even a challenge. I mean, are you kidding me? To begin with, they tell you in the story right off the bat that the Grinch's heart is two sizes too small. So he suffers from a disability. He's disabled. He has a chronic heart condition and he's been banished to live alone in a cave on a mountain. And yet we're supposed to just accept that he's the bad guy and nobody asks any questions about the backstory. How did he end up there? Why are none of the Who's and Whoville concerned about this man's health and well-being? The holier-than-thou Who's have completely ostracized a disabled guy and we're supposed to accept that his anger is unfounded? And I mean, you could argue this is a story about marginalization, if anything. And it's inconsistent too because we talked about with Rudolph, who's a deformed freak, but we're supposed to feel bad for him when he's kicked out of society. And yet the Grinch doesn't get the same consideration, which doesn't make any sense to me. Meanwhile, the Who's are frankly annoying as hell. They, they apparently sing all day and night at the top of their lungs. They got no concern for anybody else. It's obnoxious and inconsiderate. And I'm talking about just the literary version here. You know, the Grinch from the novel. Uh, I'm not even talking about the, the, the Grinch from the live action film 20 years ago, which if that's canonical, then my point is even more vindicated because that really inadvertently reveals the who's to be not only annoying, but judgmental and frivolous and fake. Now, does all of this justify the Grinch's actions? I'm not saying that it does, but I think if anything, it's more of a Michael Douglas in falling down type of situation. This is a man or whatever he is pushed to the brink. And in the Grinch's case, he actually has a change of heart revealing a depth of humility and love and empathy never demonstrated by any of the who's. So this, it's very much a hero's journey. 
I would say. I don't even think that's contrarian. I think it's just, I think, how else would you read the story? Well, like a baby that sees its father after he shaves his beard, the Sweet Baby Gang recently experienced something of a sweet daddy identity crisis. Graduating from my signature plaid to a more refined wardrobe was too much to handle, causing outcries of, uh, well, crying. Now, in honor of the Sweet Baby Gang's campaign to bully me into wearing clothing they approve of and the establishment of what should be a national holiday, the latest installment of my patch program that I never forget about is the Flannel Friday Patch. Let it be a memento of compelled fashion, among other quirks in our strange agreement, where I, the cult leader, am subservient to the whims of my followers. No, I'm not. What the hell is it? Go to dailywire.com shop to get the patch today. And while you're there, get a t-shirt and a Johnny the Walrus plushie and the Johnny the Walrus book and a leftist tears tumbler and a poster. You can get all of that stuff. Do it right now because I told you to. Also, the Daily Wire's post-production team is expanding as in a need of new talented video effort editors to help with the ever-increasing volume of Daily Wire content. Our video editors work on a variety of content, including our daily podcasts, long-form interviews, and original YouTube videos, as well as shows like Ben Shapiro's Debunked, um, uh, also Jordan Peterson, and a host of other Daily Wire Plus content. We're looking for highly creative people who possess strong technical knowledge of the video editing process. At least two years of previous professional video editing experience is required for this opportunity. And be sure to have your real or work samples prepared as they're required for consideration for this position. This is a Nashville-based position. So for details, uh, and if you want to apply, go to dailywire.com Walsh and click on careers. And finally, we launched Jeremy's Razors just a few months ago. We've already taken millions of dollars away from woke razor companies that hate you and used that money to better support your values. Jeremy's Razors is still the only razor brand that actually upholds virtue instead of signaling it. Today, you can get 40% off your Founder Series Shave Kit when you go to jeremysrazors.com. That's jeremysrazors.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. During this segment, we have in the past discussed the ever-growing epidemic of crying baristas. You know, there's a whole genre of video now, usually posted at TikTok, but sometimes Instagram or Twitter, consisting of Starbucks employees complaining, whining, or full-on weeping about the difficulties of their jobs. Um, their list of grievances are many and varied, but they seem to primarily take issue with the behavior of the customer. Specifically, the customer behavior they despise the most is that the customer exists. So the act of existing is what they really don't like. They resent the fact that customers come into the store, the store and expect them to do things. And when lots of customers have the nerve to come into the store at one time, they feel especially attacked. These weepy baristas, they'd prefer if Starbucks had no customers. They would like to get paid by Starbucks. In fact, they want to get paid a lot more by Starbucks. And yet they also want Starbucks to get much less business or no business at all. Pay me more to do less, they demand. This is their bargaining strategy. Offer to do less work, and in exchange for that concession, request more money. Now, at some Starbucks locations across the country, baristas have unionized around these demands. There's a growing organized labor movement at Starbucks. As of the beginning of October, over 300 locations had held union elections. Um, purely by coincidence, I'm sure some of the unionized stores were subsequently closed down by corporate headquarters. So they unionize, and then Starbucks says, never mind, you're closed. Union members allege that this was an act of retaliation. Starbucks corporate denies the claim. I have no opinion either way. Personally, um, I mean, I, I don't know. 
All I know, all that I'll say personally is that it is, as always, greatly enjoyable to watch a woke corporation get eaten alive by its own woke employees. And yet, I must admit that my satisfaction is impeded somewhat by the realization that the Starbucks drama is not playing out on some distant planet where I can simply watch it unfold through a telescope and laugh and then go about my day. On the contrary, this is all happening right here on this planet in a country that I must share with those involved. That's what makes it, in the end, less funny and a bit more terrifying. Especially when you consider videos like this one, which just went viral over the weekend. Watch. People wonder why we need a union at Starbucks. And I am literally about to quit. Like, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but like, I really want to. I almost walked out today and I'm crying in the back room right now and I almost cried on the floor. It's just, I like, I get, I'm like a full-time student. I get scheduled for 25 hours a week. And on a weekend, they scheduled me the entire day open to close up on the schedule for eight and a half hours, both Saturday and Sunday. I'm like three and a half hours into my shift. There's so many customers and we have four people on the floor all day. <laughs> Only five people were put on the schedule and somebody had to call out. And there are four people running the whole store and there's so many customers and there's possibly scheduled five people. <laughs> We only have 13 people employed at this store, and there's so many customers. I have to say, this Blair Witch Project reboot is pretty lame. Uh, The barista in this video is a a union activist who goes by the name Evan. This is also an Ivy League student, apparently, which I'm sure comes as no surprise. These days, when you see someone curled up on the floor, trembling in fear, muttering, there's so many customers, over and over again, like a trauma victim— The first thing you think is that it must be an Ivy League student, but we haven't yet heard the whole sob story because there's more to it. Let's continue. We don't have fair scheduling. Managers don't care about us. Our manager was supposed to come in this weekend and he took himself off the schedule so he wouldn't be able to be held accountable for calling out. He just literally tore down the schedule that he was scheduled on and put up a new schedule where he wasn't on the schedule. Also, he couldn't have even seen that he was scheduled in the first place because he didn't want to be held accountable for not wanting to come in. They don't want to help us. We need a union because this can't happen. This can't happen. We need fair scheduling. We need managers to hold themselves accountable for helping their workers. They refuse to turn mobile orders off. We need the liberty to be able to do that because there's so many mobile orders and I need to get through all of them. And then people are yelling at me because I don't have their orders ready. And they don't know what to do. And a customer was misgendering me tonight, like, really badly. I didn't have their order ready. And so they were just, like, talking, talking to each other. And they're like, she's clearly incompetent. I have a full mustache and beard. <laughs> what the f***? <laughs> I don't get accommodations for being neurodivergent. I don't... <sighs> like, I can't use... Like, I... people get mad at me for using my sick time. I don't even know what to do anymore. I'm, like, at my wits end with this job. I really am. <laughs> okay, a few things here. First of all, having a mustache doesn't mean you're not a woman. Trust me, I know. I've, I've been to the Women's March. Second, I'm not going to judge people simply for whining about their jobs. We all whine about our jobs sometimes. But there is a time and place and context for everything. And whining to the internet while still at your job during your shift in the middle of a rush is neither the correct time nor the correct context, nor the correct place. In fact, 
There is no correct time, place, or context to air your complaints about your job publicly. If you have a problem with your schedule, talk to your manager. If you need to vent, talk to a friend or to your mom or another employee when you're both off the clock. Venting to the entire world is never a good idea. The public can't help you with your problem. We don't know you. We aren't your friend. And our sympathy for the plight of a stranger can only be stretched so far. For many of us, given that we have real stresses and real responsibilities in our lives, sympathizing with a grown adult having a temper tantrum because she has to work eight hours pouring coffee is well beyond our emotional reach. You know, I frequently put in 10 or 11 hours day, hour days, and then I come home to help care for my four children, soon to be six. But you're not going to see me huddled back in the storage closet filming a teary-eyed selfie video and complaining about my stresses because I have self-respect and also because I realize that there are a great many people in this world who have much harder lives than I do. I only cry on camera when I'm not given the big stuffed animal that I'm owed. But that's totally different. Now, this video would not be worth commenting on if it was just representing a sort of isolated issue. If it was just this one barista crying about having to work a basic eight-hour shift, I wouldn't be worried about the video. And if extended beyond this one individual but was relegated only to Starbucks baristas, we'd still probably be better off ignoring it. But unfortunately, this represents a society-wide problem. There are a great many people in this country who share this person's attitude. And to be clear, the troublesome attitude is not simply that they don't want to work. I mean, nobody really wants to work. Almost all of us would take a billion dollars and spend the rest of our lives on vacation if that option was presented to us. I have no issue with people who wish they didn't have to put in the work. I wish for a lot of things that are unreasonable or impossible. I'm about to have two newborns in my house again. I wish that they're both going to sleep soundly through the night from the moment that they're born. I wish that my kids would keep their room spotlessly clean. I wish that we could walk out the door without having to look around frantically for somebody's lost shoe or jacket. I wish for many things. If I ever gain access to a magical genie, I will have a whole laundry list of wishes ready to go. But until that day arrives, I accept that things are not exactly how I want them to be. And I carry on with my life and I fulfill my responsibilities anyway. This is the key to adulthood. In fact, this is adulthood. It is what being an adult is all about. You must develop the ability to function and thrive in environments that are not specifically set up to satisfy your every desire and whim. You must be able to cope with frustration and succeed in spite of it and through it. Being an adult in the real world is to be constantly thrust into situations where things are not going exactly how you want them to go. And there's more stress than you would like and yet carrying on anyway, and finding a way to turn even unfortunate circumstances to your advantage in pursuit of your goals. The problem is that we've built a society filled with people who cannot handle any amount of frustration at all. They can't carry on, let alone thrive. They collapse and they melt into a puddle. And rather than, than converting frustration into opportunity, which is what successful people do, they look to convert everything into pity because that's the only currency they're interested in collecting. And the fundamental issue is that while, while nobody wants to work, these people actually think that they shouldn't have to. They don't just wish for the magical genie. They think that the world owes it to them. And when the world doesn't give them what they believe they're owed, they only cave into themselves even farther, feeling not only sorry for themselves, but also aggrieved. 
as though the very realities of human existence are an attack on them personally. You cannot function as an adult this way. And if too many people in a society have this attitude, soon society can no longer function. That's what we're facing now. And it's why I must say to Evan, the Ivy League barista, crying in the storage room, you are today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. 